Welcome to episode two of the History They Don't Teach podcast. I'm Michael Cisternino, kind of forgotten to mention that in episode one, uh, uh, and I am once again joined by Avi, and we also on the show with us have uh, Max Johnson. Max, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm here potentially as a guest, maybe a new cast member. I don't know. It's a little uncertain, but that does bring us into it's thematically appropriate for today's show, which is about the uncertain fate of the Kurdish population, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, as well as as well as some as well as another ethnic and religious minority called the Yazidis, but we'll get into that later. So if you haven't heard episode one of the show, uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. A lot of stuff we talk about today won't make much sense if you don't list, if you don't have the context of episode one. That said, if you don't care much about context or if you just really want to start out with episode two, who are we to deny you that? So or or if you're a psychopath, that also works to watch episodes not in order. That too, I suppose. I suppose we are kind of pandering to the psychopath demographic with this. Uh, <laughs> so, in the previous episode, we talked about the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, and left off with how they went from authoritarian nationalists to libertarian socialists. Now, unfortunately for the PKK, uh, despite their new egalitarian ideals, it didn't really seem like they were ever going to get the chance to put those ideals into practice around the turn of the millennium. Support oh, from yeah, Iraq and Syria You're not going to make up. me search up egalitarian, are you? Come on, define that. Oh, it's... it's you like, didn't hear the, like, the French Revolution? They were all like, egalité, liberté, uh, decapitation. I don't speak them French languages. I don't know what you're talking about. Go back to your it's country. Just like, it's just like everyone's equal. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah. So I thought it was everyone is eagle, but no. <laughs> yeah, that's American that's right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, despite despite their new egalitarian ideals, it really didn't seem like the PKK was ever going to put those ideals into practice around the early two thousands. Like support from Iraq and Syria had dried up, and of course. Their leader was in a top security island prison. Uh, so while they never really gave up, the PKK's revolution for the most part just kind of petered out. So for now, we'll leave them sitting in the Kandil Mountains in northern Iraq, launching the occasional uh, border raids into Turkey, a Chekhov's army of a few thousand committed revolutionaries who will just leave them there. So at this point, we're going to back up and talk about a Syrian Kurdish group called the PYD, or Democratic Union Party, which was founded in 2003. Now, Turkey will tell you that they are the PKK's Syrian branch, and that's not entirely untrue. But the distinction is important because while the U.S. designates the PKK as a terrorist organization, it does not designate the PYD as a terrorist organization, and that will come in very important next episode. And also, is this the whole like one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter? Absolutely. Or maybe America's just selling guns to one and not the other. That too. But we'll get into that next episode. Um. <laughs> uh, so now, of course, much like the PKK at the time, the P the initial PYD wasn't really much of a force to be reckoned with. And aside from inciting a few riots in northern Syria, 
they didn't really do that much until 2011. Now, what do you guys know of that happened in 2011 in Syria that could potentially change that? Hmm. Maybe it was the YouTube 2011 rewind. <laughs> was that like it- the first one? <laughs> I don't know. I should. I should actually look it up. Hold on. Give me a second. Research is like, happening. No, this. We we can't have so, ties to America if they're producing this kind of thing. I mean, they they didn't have ties to America at this point. <laughs> well, then now uh, they're like, we especially can't. Update YouTube first. YouTube rewind was 2010. 2010, folks. Okay, so. So, uh, it wasn't the release of YouTube that uh brought the PYD from relative unimportance to moderate importance. It was the outbreak of civil war in Syria. <laughs> uh, okay. So they seem pretty related to be honest. So I don't know how we can mess that one up. I yeah, love this be. community, but this community lo- doesn't love itself. <laughs> uh, I mean, Syria, Syria certainly didn't love itself. They were, they were killing each other in the most, the most in the bloodiest, Civil War of the 21st century <laughs> so far. Uh, now, with the outbreak of war, the PYD formed a pa- paramilitary wing, the YPG, or People's Protection Units. Uh, so this is where we get into another important facet of the democratic philosophy followed both by the PYD and the PKK. So Murray Bookchin, remember him, he was that uh, anarchist philosopher who influenced Abdullah Oshalan's ideas back in episode one, uh, but he posited that the domination of nature by humans was preceded by the domination of humans by other humans. And Oshalan kind of expanded upon this by saying, quote unquote, wait, should I do this? Should I do this in the Borat voice? Or <laughs> Absolutely. What is that even a question? <laughs> uh Gender discrimination has a twofold destructive effect on society. Firstly, it has opened society to slavery. All other forms of enslavement have been implemented on the basis of housewifeization. So if if you couldn't really understand that or just didn't understand my terrible Borat voice, uh, he's essentially s- saying that the slavery of women preceded all other forms of slavery. Now you're probably wondering what this that kisses woman this is the slave <laughs> so you're probably wondering what this has to do with the YPG so actually how could what what could Borat do to relate to the YPG at this point is he in the YouTube rewind don't tell him he's in the YouTube rewind I mean Oshalan, Oshalan is uh, still in prison in Imrali, but his philosophy is going to do do a great deal to influence them. So I also I don't think he's a very safe creator. Like I think he kind of falls into the PewDiePie camp of like people YouTube doesn't really want to associate their brand with. Definitely get demonetized after he he read Bookchin's books. Yeah, and advocating and- for the killing of people who didn't agree with him. Actually, yeah. he he kind of really stopped advocating for that after he read Bookchin's books. But <laughs> so oh, I see, I see. So we're just the media so like, taking it out of context. 
like like PewDiePie's, just like you know the pictures of PewDiePie ironically doing stuff. You know what? This is a tangent. You know what we do with tangents? This is absolutely a hole. tangent. And we and we lock them up. So I'm gonna stick this one in the hole and lock them up. Continue. Yeah. So. So because the existing societal structure is dominated by men, obviously you're going to need parallel institutions in which you can guarantee that women aren't being dominated by men so they can develop independently in a full capacity. So in addition to the YPG, which is co-ed, the PYD also created the YPJ, an all-female militia to ensure that women would be able to develop their own capacities without being dominated by men. So in addition to that, all command positions are shared jointly by a man and a woman, and barring extreme circumstances like, like in the heat of battle, men aren't allowed to give orders to women within the YPG. So uh, they are especially considering that, like, this is in, like, 2011 Syria, or actually the YPJ wasn't established until 2013, but considering that this is, like, Early 2010s Syria, they are radically feminist. In fact, they're also radically yeah. feminist compared to pretty America. much anywhere else in the world. Yeah, yeah like I'm really surprised at like the the um amount of like positivity from some of these little anecdotes. Like like the next thing that can happen is is one of the members is gonna create like the Black Lives Matter slogan, and then they're all gonna turn anarchist again. <laughs> Free ice cream for everyone who joins the uh what's the what's the acronym? Uh YPG or YPJ, depending on whether you're talking about the people's protection units or the women's protection units. It's it's always some weird variation on the letter P Y and then something else for just all of these names. Uh I I mean, they all stand for things in Kurdish, like the PKK is the Partie Karker in Kurdistania, uh, the YPG is the Yepa something, uh, Perstinia Gal, the YPJ is like the something Perstinia Jin. They all... <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, so, so... Now, obviously, you can't just, like, build an army out, up out of nowhere, so, like, you're probably wondering where they got all the people to like make the YPG and YPJ anything more than just like well, a few dozen the women that no one else was using. Like that's, I mean, that's yeah, pretty they... significant forces right there. Oh yeah, definitely. Like they they actually attract a lot of a lot of criticism from like the mostly conservative uh, northeast Syrian Kurds. Because they insist on training, training up the women as well as the men. But you remember that Pete, that Chekhov's army we just kind of left in the Kandil Mountains in northern Iraq earlier? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So a lot of a lot of PKK guys from the mountains just come down out of their mountains, and they kind of form the core of the initial YPG. Uh, and of course, uh. With the outbreak of the Syrian civil war, uh, the dictatorial regime of Bashar al-Assad was definitely on the back foot. So they, so by 2012, the YPG had effectively taken control of substantial territory in Syria's northeast, which they dubbed Rojava or the West, as in Western Kurdistan. And for the first time since the Spanish civil war, 
millions would be living in anarchy. Uh, so uh, we'll we'll talk about exactly um, we'll talk about exactly how the they established a revolutionary society and what changes that entailed. But for now, just know that they upended society and began reconstructing it on radically egalitarian and feminist lines. Just uh, for reference, when was the Spanish Civil War? 1936 to 1939. Uh, but oh, nice. The, but the anarchist revolution like happened mainly in 1936 and then was kind of crushed by Stalinists. Nobody uh, expects so, me to say the Spanish Civil War after I said nobody expects it. Everyone expects me to say that nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. I mean, the the Stalinists did start purging their political opponents, it, including the anarchists. But you can see the initial map of the territory they controlled. So, yeah, they're they're doing pretty good for themselves. They did the. First anarchist revolution since the Zapatistas in the in 1994, and the first like one on a truly massive scale since like since 1936. So they had their revolution uh, if what? they could keep it. Again, I'm I'm just showing up here because I'm a psychopath and I'm jumping in the second episode. But what is a Stalinist? Like, what are the principles other than having a sick mustache? Uh, I think that's I it, mean, actually. There's, there's a, a lot of philosophy or theory that, like, Stalin wrote effectively justifying after the fact him, like, taking power and, like, focusing mainly on Russia and just kind of ignoring uh, the pleas of revolutionaries outside of Russia. But mainly it just states that, like, before, before the state dissolving away, you need a vanguard party which in pre to take power and rule as a dictatorship of the proletariat to facilitate the transition to statelessness. So eventually, so essentially it's just saying, like, to get to real socialism, you need to put Stalin in charge first. Also, a, that guy, that guy Trotsky, very pale, easily mistaken for ice block. That's why KGB hit him in the face with ice pick. Easy I just mistake. want to go back really quick to Michael. What you just said uh, about people theorizing that Stalin wrote books after the fact, like justifying it. Like what? What are in those? Oh, books? that's oh, the sun was in my eyes, guys. I I thought I was sending them to uh, the farm, but I was sending them to the gulag. Like I didn't know. Like that I stuff? mean, no, no. Stalin just like Stalin. It was my little brother running the country. That's why everyone starved. <laughs> he uh, picked up the parchment and started signing things. I mean, Stalin. Stalin wrote like some theory after the fact. He co-opted a lot of what Lenin wrote, but mainly Stalinist philosophy just calls for like a revolutionary state to take power and then facilitate the transition to statelessness whereas like anarchism just says you don't need a state just get rid of the state immediately that that stuff about needing a transitional state is just bullshit cooked up by lenin and stalin as an excuse for why they were in charge okay uh, so the pkk and the pyd had their revolution at last if they could keep it in 2014 
ISIS swept across Iraq and Syria, and Rojava found itself fighting a war of annihilation against Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's fascist caliphate. Now, uh, you, now uh, we're actually going to take a break from what's going on in northeast Syria. We'll come back to it later on, but like, now we're going to focus on Iraq, particularly with regard to a minority group called the Yazidis. Now, the Yazidis primarily inhabited the Nineveh Plains on the border with Syria and was ostensibly under the protection of the Kurdistan Regional Government, or KRG, in Iraq. Now, suppose it's 2014. You're the KRG, and ISIS is invading the Nineveh Plains. What would you do? I would make sure that the 2014 rewind had nothing to do with this. I thought you you put this bit to death, Avi. I thought it was it was tangented right into the ground. Now the YouTube rewind will always live. It will never die. We can we can we can leave anyway, we can I leave would, some uh, in YouTube rambling in as a treat. I would definitely if I if I were in that spot, I would definitely try and prevent uh my territory from being taken. Well, basically, my entire understanding of military tactics comes from the board game Risk. Um, yeah, well, the KRG honestly couldn't care less about the Yazidis. They were an ethnic and religious minority. So they not only withdrew the soldiers that were supposedly there to protect them, they also disarmed the Yazidis so they couldn't even protect themselves. So oh. in, early t in early August, ISIS swept in virtually unopposed, and uh, I'll, I'll just read some testimony from a survivor of what happened by the name of Hade. When IS came to our village, they didn't know anything about the Yazidis. Our Muslim neighbors told them, the Yazidis don't believe in God, that we aren't Muslim. So you can probably guess what ISIS did then. Uh, if you can't, I'll just read another quote from Hade. IS killed the men and sold the women into slavery in markets in Iraq and Syria. So a 2017 report by the PLOS Medical Journal estimated between 2,100 and 404,000 uh, deaths and 4,200 to 10,800 abductions. So, wow. These are probably. These Congratulations, are boys. We've entered the no joke zone. Yep, we're, we're talking about genocide, unfortunately. Yeah. So those are actually probably smaller numbers than you were expecting, considering that there are, like, way more Yazidis than that, and, like, most of them weren't able to get out when ISIS came in. So genocide, there's a more like More like <laughs> being uncomfortable. <laughs> Am I right? That was a good one, but is it, uh, mm. <laughs> Yeah, high five. Yeah. So there's, there's a reason that, like, it, the numbers were as low as just, a, like, 10,000 or so people killed and sell, sold into sex slavery. Uh, this was about the time that, the U.S. That sounds, that sounds like quite a bit to me, actually. I don't know about you, but if I saw 10,000 people being sold into sex slavery, I'd be like, damn, that's a lot of people being sold into sex slavery. Well, I think you gotta think about it as total population. Yeah. So, there's a reason What's, for that. We were talking uh, about Stalinist. Stalin was like, one death is a tragedy, a thousand deaths is a statistic. 
The actual line was a million deaths is a statistic. A million deaths. And... See, th that I was so installing short. Although it's unlikely he ever actually said that, but it's it's on theme for Stalin. And then he uh, said, let them eat cake, and said that nine out of ten dentists say that Crest is for you. <laughs> uh, so, however, this was about... <laughs> This was about the time the U.S. started bombing ISIS, which gave an estimated 50,000 Yazidis time to flee up their holy Mount Sinjar as ISIS surrounded the mountain and began the process of starving them out. Uh, the U.S. airdropped in food, and this was, by and large, touted by the mainstream American media as that rare feel-good story of the U.S. taking timely action to stop a genocide before it's too late. Uh, however... When, when you start consulting actual Yazidi people about what happened, uh, that narrative starts to fall apart quickly. So it quickly became evident that the U.S. campaign was insufficient and mostly posturing. Despite the bombing and airdrops, Yazidis were starving to death on their mountain and cornered by ISIS. So, so you're probably wondering, what did save the Yazidis? America. Oh wait. Did they it wasn't. It wasn't I, that filthy EU, was it? Listen, I bet they would. We would have tried harder if they had oil. That's all I'm saying. If you want, if you want your third world country saved by a first world country, just have oil. I'm, I'm or, just it out or there. I think the American government hands out special punch cards for if you buy ten arms deals, we'll give you a free overthrow of a dictator you don't like. Like, yeah. uh, like every, a subway. For every ten Jericho missiles, you get one free dictator. <laughs> uh, I mean, the U.S. the U.S. was like dropping in food and trying to airlift people out, but it just wasn't enough. Like, enter enter our old boys the, and and girls, actually the PKK. So writes Tracy Shelton in the Global Post, despite a widely publicized U.S. bombing campaign to save them, family after family tells the same story of escape. While the Western media narrative has emphasized the U.S. role and that of the Iraqi Kurds, Peshmerga forces battling IS in recent weeks, it was instead the Kurds coming from Syria and Turkey who saved the Yazidis' lives. A limited number were airlifted off the mountain, but the mass exodus took place on foot. The much-valued Peshmerga, immediate, meanwhile, initially ran. So... Yeah. Uh, so the PKK, uh, Q, I will remind you, the U.S. was at the time and still labeling as a terrorist group, uh, diverted, diverted invaluable soldiers while they were fighting ISIS in Syria to invade Iraq, punch a hole in ISIS's lines and and just like drive in, drive in like tractors and stuff to like rescue as many Yazidis as they can. So an estimated 35,000 Yazidis were able to escape into Syria. So you can see I posted a picture of like, they, they like drove in like construction farm equipment because like normal vehicles wouldn't be able to like go on the mountainous terrain, but yeah. So it reminds me of like India where, where people would just like stack on top of each other like they're Tetris or something on a one vehicle. Yeah, it was like, it was crazy, but like, so, yeah, uh, 
instead of being a feel-good story about the U.S. stepping in to protect a genocide, it was a feel-good story about a group the U.S. calls terrorists stepping in at a timely moment to prevent a genocide. America! Uh, oh, wait a second. Dude, I, bet, I, bet, I bet the terrorists found the oil. And that's I mean, they... ISIS, ISIS was taking in, like, a billion dollars a year in stolen oil revenues, so... <laughs> I knew it! Those bastards. Uh, so, yeah, the PKK saved tens of thousands of Yazidis from uh, death or slavery at the hands of ISIS. So I'm, I'm going to read some testimony from Yazidi survivors of the, of the Sinjar massacre now. Uh, the PKK saved us. They cleared a path for us so we could escape the Sinjar mountains into Syria. Thank God for the PKK and YPG, and if it wasn't for the Kurdish fighters, we would have died up there. This is pretty wholesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised. However, uh, surprised it's not a um, uh, like a, a movie where where there's like a dog and and there's like a family, and and they and they all like meet again at the end and everyone's crying. You know mm. what I'm talking about? And it, it doesn't make a lot yeah. of money at the box office because no and one then, wants to see it. But like 20 years the, later, people know about the it. It the ISIS guy shaking their fists in anger. And he's like, those, those damn PKK. They uh, got us. I mean, nowadays, uh, there were Yazidi people going back to Mount Sinjar. But then, like, just last week, Turkey Turkey started bombing that place to try and drive out the PKK because... <laughs> uh... Dude, the sequel movie. This time it's like someone else. He tries, tries to come in and ruin everything. Yeah, so the Yazidis were returning to their homeland, and then Turkey just started bombing them to drive out the people who had saved them. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So now we can get back to talking about uh, what they were doing in northeast Syria in Rojava. Uh, unfortunately for the PKK uh, and YPG, diverting invaluable fighters when you're fighting for your very survival isn't, isn't exactly a winning strategic move. So remember how we talked about how the PKK faced a considerable pushback from conservative northeast Syrian Kurds when they came in and insisted in training the women how to fight in addition to the men? Yes. So that that pushback was presumably mysteriously absent as ISIS bore down on the city of Kobane and Rojava needed every fighter it could muster in the battle that would later be spoken of as the Kurdish Stalingrad. So it's like Stalingrad, except it's a it's a movie where there's a dog. What what they is, all reunite what is at the end. Stalin ending up in every part of this narrative? Um, it should be the Stalin show. The Stalin yeah. they don't teach. This episode we talk about Stalin's cats. Actually, this, we're this feels Stalin. like just like a spinoff of like Stalin. One of our future uh, series needs to be about the Russian Revolution and Counter Revolution. Yeah, but yeah, it's just like it. It does seem like in the movie when they make a spinoff, but they want to really tie it back to like the the main story. And so they just keep name dropping. Exactly. Yeah. Max, do you want to do the summary for this episode? 
What do you think happened? What can you remember? Okay. So I remember that the PKK has uh, has gone far to the left compared to the other more conservative nations of the Middle East and recruited women. And mm-hmm. with this new found power, they were able to help drive off an ISIS invasion of a mountain um, and well, prevent further genocide. Well, they were they were able they weren't able to drive it off. They were able to evacuate the populace Dunkirk style. Yeah, you're right. And it would be a Dunkirk movie. Oh, exactly. So we so found blind. the genre, <laughs> and that left them a little open on one of their borders. And without troops, and that's going to lead us into the events of next episode. Oh, they were they were still desperately wanting for troops in yes. Kobane. They had like five thousand guys in Kobane, or guys and girls. Uh, ISIS ISIS had seven thousand and fifty tanks. Fifty tanks. Yup. <laughs> Yo, what? Can can we just like lend them some like? Abrams or whatever, because we have plenty of tanks that's, we're using. That, that's almost literally what we did. ISIS, ISIS got most of their equipment from the Iraqi army, which the U.S. had just spent like the previous the previous ten years or whatever, like pouring pouring like equipment and money into. Oh well, so, yeah. I was saying I wasn't saying we give ISIS the tanks. <laughs> I mean, hey guys, that's making sure a- it's merciful, like a, <laughs> a like. <laughs> 55 cal hurts hurts a lot less than you know just being shot with a revolver or whatever uh that's the episode and and as well as a bunch of tangents